We have some very important things to share with you tonight. Tonight is the third phase of the presentation of the beast. We told you there are two beasts in Revelation chapter 13. We're going to focus a little more on the second beast tonight. Would you join me again for a word of prayer as we solicit the Holy Spirit to guide us? Father in heaven, as we consider this monumental subject this evening, I'm praying that you, in the present and person of the Holy Spirit, will take possession of every person's mind and heart. Help us to hear you speaking and calling us to come home. Bless us now, I pray, that Christ might be exalted, and it's in his name we ask. Amen. Well, as our custom, we're going to start with an interesting, amazing fact. Uh, it's incredible how some different churches start. We know there are hundreds, if not thousands, of different churches that claim to be Christian. King Henry VIII was at odds with Pope Clement VII because of the Pope's reluctance to annul his marriage to Catherine of Argonne. So, King Henry sent a delegation to the Vatican in an effort to patch up the political differences between himself and the Pope. The delegation was led by the Earl of Wilshire, who also took along his dog. As was customary at the time, the Earl prostrated himself before the Pope and was about to kiss the Pope's big toe. The Pope, willing to receive this homage, he thrust his foot towards the Earl, but the Earl's watching dog misunderstood this action, and he went to the defense of his master and chomped down on the Pope's toe. This so enraged the Swiss guard, they instantly killed the poor dog. This so angered the Earl that he stormed away and refused to proceed with the mission to reconcile England with Rome. After his return to England, King Henry sort of threw up his hands and they started the Anglican Church. All because of a dog bite. <laughs> Denominations have been formed for less valid reasons than that. You'd be surprised. Let's go to our historical tonight in our lesson on the daughter's dance. The greatest of the prophets, Jesus tells us, was John the Baptist, who, like Elijah before him, fearlessly preached the truth even when it meant he needed to tell kings about the sin in their life. We read that Herod, the Tetrarch, being rebuked by John concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, he also added this above all, that he shut John up in prison. Herod had John placed in a prison because John the Baptist had reproved him for his adulterous relationship in marrying his brother Philip's wife, plus a lot of other things and sins that were in his life. Herodias was intimidated by this uh, prophet. And she egged Herod on to imprison him. But Herod... Herod, he believed that John was a messenger of God, and he often called for him, and he listened to him. Herodias noticed that the Holy Spirit was beginning to work on Herod's heart, and he was being convicted, and she knew she had to get rid of John, or she would soon be out of the palace. Well, Herod had a birthday party, and Herodias had a plan. She knew that he'd invite all his friends, and he'd drink too much, and he had a way of being loud and bombastic and make promises. And... Uh, Salome, Herodias' daughter, went out to dance for King Herod. Now, this was not the kind of dancing that Miriam did when she crossed the Red Sea to celebrate. This was not the kind of dancing that David did before the Ark of the Lord. This was the sexually suggestive type of dancing where you accentuate the movement of certain parts of the anatomy that are calculated to arouse the opposite sex. And he was already drunk. And so he was so um, inspired by what he saw that he made this bold promise to give her anything she wanted up to half of the kingdom. The Bible says, so she went forth and she said to her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, ask for the head of John the Baptist. Ask the mother for some counsel about what she should ask for. And Herodias, without hesitation, said, look, he's made a promise. A king's word is law. And Herodias said, you go back in there and you say you want the head of John the Baptist right now before he changes his mind on a silver platter. Well, you've heard that expression before. They say, the one my head on a silver platter comes from this story in the Bible. Herod did not want to do it. But because the king's word was law and everybody was watching, you know what happened? John the Baptist lost his head. He sent an executioner right then and there to the prison. And that prophet of God was beheaded alone in that dark prison cell. Jesus said, he was the greatest of the prophets. 
You know, this is not the first mother-daughter team that's conspired to persecute God's people. Let's go to question number one of our lesson. What other mother and daughter team persecuted God's people in the Old Testament? You, I expect, have heard about, what's her name? Jezebel, who slew the prophets of the Lord. Jezebel was infamous in the Old Testament because she married Ahab. She was a pagan queen that married the government, the king. And the Bible says Ahab worked more evil than all the kings were before him because Jezebel stirred him up. She provoked him. She egged him on. She used his power and abused his power for her personal design. She began to spread her favorite religion, which was Baal worship among the people of Israel. And idolatry spread like cancer all through the land of Israel because of Jezebel. Jezebel had a daughter. Her daughter married Jehoshaphat's son. Now, keep in mind, friends, the northern kingdom, they went off to idolatry and they began to apostatize. The southern kingdom, for several generations, tried to be true to the scriptures and the Bible, the worship of God. But when the daughter of Jezebel, Athaliah, married Jehoshaphat's son, when they began to join together and to form a unity, the southern kingdom sacrificed their biblical convictions. They crept into idolatry. And this combination brought about the demise. It says, And when Athaliah saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal seed. One of our earlier historicals talked about Athaliah. Question number two. What is the second angel's message in Revelation 14? Answer. There followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city... Because she's made all nations drink the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now, Babylon, of course, doesn't represent literal ancient Babylon. Babylon represents fallen Christendom that compromises with the pagan religions of the world, just like ancient Israel and Judea compromised with the pagan nations around them. Friends, don't miss this point. What happened in the Old Testament is being repeated in the New Testament. What happened with literal Israel in the Old Testament is being patterned again by spiritual Israel in our day and age. Just think about it for a minute. For three and a half years in the Old Testament, 1,260 days, Jezebel persecuted the prophets of God. Elijah had to flee into the wilderness where God fed him there. Then you go to the New Testament period of time, and for a spiritual, prophetic 1,260 days, which is 1,260 years, God's church had to flee into the wilderness, persecuted by the church that compromised. Prophecy repeated itself. Number three, how does God symbolize uh, Babylon in Revelation chapter 17? It says, and the... Woman, which thou sawest, is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. This is the last verse in Revelation 17. Now, what great city was ruling over the kings of the earth when John wrote Revelation? Rome. Now, what does a woman represent in prophecy? If a woman represents a church, and here you've got a woman in Rome, do we need to spend a lot of time guessing about what prominent church is based in Rome that compromised biblical truth? No, I think that uh, that's very evident. Question number four. What other evidence from Revelation 17 proves that Babylon refers to Papal Rome? Now, Papal Rome is a word we technically use to speak of the Roman Catholic Church. The things that we're studying tonight are not simply for what we call the Roman Catholic Church, but a number of other Orthodox churches, Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, have followed some of the same doctrinal compromises. She is guilty of what? Blasphemy. So we're going to look at some of the definitions quickly. We're re-identifying the first beast. Blasphemy. Some of you heard about uh, Pope John Paul II's best-selling book called Crossing the Threshold of Hope. Here's a quote from page three, very beginning. Chapter titled, The Pope, A Scandal and a Mystery. Confronted with the Pope, one must make a choice. The leader of the Catholic Church is defined by the faith as the vicar of Jesus Christ. Some of you wondered if we made that up. It's in his own book, Vicarious Philidei, Vicar of Christ. And is accepted as such by believers. The Pope is considered the man on earth who represents the Son of God, 
who takes the place of the second person of the omnipotent God of the Trinity. A human who takes the place of the second person of the Trinity. Now, friends, if I was going to try to speak words of blasphemy, I couldn't frame anything better than that. And it says right there on the cover of the book, by his holiness. The Bible tells us that God is holy. Holy and reverend is his name. We're humans. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And keep in mind, I told you my dad met the man. He said he's a wonderful man, a kind man, maybe perfectly sincere. He may not know what I'm sharing with you. And so I'm not talking about the individual. I'm talking about the office and the titles that are represented there. There's something very unbiblical about that. Some other definitions that Revelation tells us about this woman. She's dressed in purple. Well, you see for yourself, those are some of the primary colors of the cardinals. And scarlet. We can go a little further. She is called the mother. Are you aware that when Pope John Paul II makes a visit to North America, one of his appeals is that he's inviting his Protestant children to return to the mother church. They use that same language. Here's a document that comes from 1995, Vatican City, in a 115-page encyclical document on ecumenism. It reaffirms the Pope's commitment to bridging the gap with Protestants and asserts his role as the prime mover behind the ecumenical movement. What is it he's admitting? The prime mover behind the ecumenical movement. You know what the ecumenical movement is? That all the churches that claim to be Christian lay aside their doctrinal divisions and differences and come together. Now, who is calling everyone together? They claim that we are the catalyst that is generating that movement. Now, I'm not going to be popular after some of what I say tonight, friends, but I need to tell the truth. And so... Uh, you pray for me because some of what I'm saying is actually life-threatening. Uh, no, I'm serious. It's dangerous. And I'd like to pretend that I'm not at all afraid. Uh, I'm more afraid of God than what man might do to me. So I'm going to preach the truth. But I'm still afraid. I'll just admit it. You pray for me. These things are not popular. Um, you've heard of the Promise Keepers movement. You know, they have a great ministry. They get men together from all over the world. It started with a handful and it swept the country now where hundreds and hundreds of thousands of men come together in these colossal stadiums. And they say, let's lay aside our doctrinal differences. And the, the theme of being better husbands and better fathers and keeping their vows to God and their family is a wonderful theme. But you know, another part of that agenda is... They sing, let's bring down the walls. And they're speaking specifically of the denominational doctrinal walls that separate. This is something that has been very highly supported by the Catholic Church. And it has repercussions. Its initial movement is very good. Keep in mind what Jesus said about the final deception. He said that it would be so subtle, so attractive, so convincing, so beautiful, that even if it were possible, the very elect could be deceived. And so, friends, you're not going to be popular if you take a stand for the Bible and the Bible only. It says she has harlot daughters. Well, you know, virtually all the Protestant churches, to some extent, came out of the mother church. They protested a variety of doctrines. Many of them did not come all the way out. As one theologian said, they still retain in their bosom relics of popery. In other words, they're still clinging to certain doctrines that you cannot trace to the Bible, but nowhere else but the Catholic Church. We discovered, for instance, Sunday keeping. You can look in history. Constantine, the Roman emperor, in 313 AD established the Edict of Milan and he established Sunday as a day of worship. And someone might say, oh, well, that's because he became a Christian and he wanted to establish what the church was already doing. They don't know their history. He was worshiping Apollo, the sun god, and he called it the Venerable Day of the Sun, S-U-N. He there established it. Christians over the next 200 years till about 538 began to try to keep both days to make the Romans happy until eventually they abandoned the Bible Sabbath and embraced the Roman Sabbath and the church endorsed that and the Catholic Church says this change we did by our authority and all the Protestants who keep Sunday are acknowledging the supremacy of the Catholic Church because there is not a single Bible command that tells us to worship on the first day of the week. And when people do that, instead of the commandment of God, they're putting the laws of men, the laws of tradition, ahead of the laws of God, and you are the servant to the one you obey. 
That's why this is an important issue, especially when God says one thing and the church does something different. It says it would be a persecuting power. She persecuted and martyred the saints. There's no question about that. They freely admit it. I respect Pope John Paul II because he is one of the first popes who is admitting that the church persecuted and he's going to capitalize on the millennium to make a pilgrimage and seek forgiveness for the abuses of the church. They're admitting it. Look up the Inquisition in your encyclopedia. Get an airplane ticket to Europe and go visit the basement of some of these churches. They'll take you on a tour of the dungeons where the inquisitors tortured Christians. One of the things they would do just to give you an idea of what the church endorsed. If a person was preaching the Bible that was against the doctrines of the organized church, they would keep them dehydrated until they were craving water. They would soak a cloth in glass. They would make them swallow this cloth and then they'd tear it out of their throat and rip out their vocal cords so they couldn't preach anymore. The church did this. They had the permission and the endorsement of the church. They would bury women alive. If a man said that he was going to preach and believe the Bible, if he did not give up his convictions, they would execute the children in front of the man. In England, they have a well, a deep well, where they put spikes at the bottom. And one by one, they had big families back then, they would throw the children down the well until the man said he would give up his faith. You, you read the history. I know this sounds a little bit disturbing, but I want you to be disturbed, I'm telling you. Because people have forgotten what happened. People have forgotten that between 50 and 70 million people were executed during this time of the Dark Ages. And again, I want to reiterate that there are a lot of lovely, good people who've done a great work for the Lord in these different churches around the world. But they need to know what their history is. Great numbers were driven from their habitations with their wives and children, stripped and naked, many of them inhumanely massacred. This is in the book, The History of the Popes, page 334. It says she sits upon seven mountains. When you look up seven in your encyclopedia, I did it in my computer encyclopedia, it said Rome, city of seven hills. It's been known that way for thousands of years. Rome is founded in 753 B.C. on the seven hills, a term used to describe her for centuries. And there you've got the names. I don't speak Italian, so I'm not going to slaughter the names of the seven hills there that surround the old city. The city of seven hills. It says the seven heads on which the woman sits are seven mountains. Now, not only do those mountains represent the seven literal hills of Rome, a mountain represents a kingdom. And it's telling us that this power would follow, there would be seven in, in total. And you have that. Yeah, you read about the five that are fallen, one that is, and, and uh, you'll read that all in Revelation chapter 17. Answer G. She rules over the kings of the earth. It's going to be a universal power. That's what the word Catholic means. And certainly it fits that description. Question number five. How do the beasts of Revelation 13 and 17 compare? You remember when we looked at Revelation 12 and 13, it talks about this beast that rises up out of the sea. And it's got seven heads and ten horns. Oh, I'm sorry, I'll give you a chance for the answer here. Having seven heads and ten horns and upon his heads the names of blasphemy. And then it goes on and you look in Revelation 17, you find a very similar beast. I saw a woman now sitting on a scarlet colored beast full of names of blasphemy having seven heads and ten horns. You have Rome in Revelation 12. Then you've got in Revelation and 13, seven heads and uh, same beast, ten horns. Then you get to Revelation 13, same beast, but a woman is sitting on it. So here you've got, what does a woman represent? And the Bible says this woman is decked out with artificial earthly light. Gold and pearls and scarlet. She's not got the sun, moon and stars as God's church, okay? She is sitting on, when a person sits on a horse, who's supposed to be in charge? The rider. She is directing. And so here you've got this picture of this woman who rises up, this beast, this woman rising on a beast out of the sea, representing it came out of a densely populated area. Number six, what is the meaning and origin of the word Babylon? Answer, Genesis 11 reminds us, they said, let us build a city and a tower whose top might reach unto heaven. And the Lord said, let us go down and there confound their language. What does the word confound mean? Confuse that they may not understand one another's speech, 
Therefore, the name of it is called Babel, because there the Lord did confound the language of all the earth. When the languages were confused and confounded, was that a blessing or a curse? That was a curse. That was not evidence of God's blessing when they all began to babble. Are you listening? It was not an evidence of God's blessing when they began to babble. It was an evidence of God's disapproval. Yet today, Babylon has come back to the church and it's being portrayed as a blessing of God. Now, I believe in all the gifts of the Spirit. I believe in the gift of tongues. I believe the Lord gave me the gift of tongues. We're practicing the gifts of the Spirit right now during this seminar. We've got a number of men back here behind the stage and women back here behind stage that are using their gifts of tongues to take what I'm saying and converting it into the languages of their respective nations. And it's a wonderful thing to behold. We're still going to try and show you a video clip of what's going on back there because it's pretty exciting, I'll tell you. But, in the same way that one of the characteristics of ancient Babylon was confusion of tongues, a very popular phenomenon has taken over in the last 80 years, 90 years in North America, a confusion of tongues has begun to spread through the mainline churches and it's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I believe in the gift of tongues. But a lot of the babbling that is going on in these churches that they're calling the gift of the Spirit is not the gift of the Spirit, friends. And we're going to talk about that and we'll give you Bible evidence. I pray your hearts and minds are open to this because a lot of things are going on that uh, right under people's noses and they think it's the evidence of God and it's really the evidence of the counterfeit. Keep in mind, the devil has a counterfeit for every truth of God. There are counterfeit baptisms. He's got a counterfeit for love. It's called lust. Got counterfeit Sabbath. The counterfeit for tongues too. Devil has a counterfeit for every truth of God. Number seven, how does God describe Babylon in urging his people to leave? And it says in Revelation 18, verse two through four, he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit. Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins and that you receive not of her plagues. Now, is it clear to you that it's going to be dangerous for those who remain in Babylon? Is that clear? I hope that's clear, friends. Notice what God says, come out of her, my people. Now, I need to give you a little bit of history. Abraham is the father of the faithful. Why? Because he had enough courage to take his wife, Sarah, and to bring Sarah out of Mesopotamia. You know what? That's where Babylon is. He brought Sarah, his wife, out of Babylon into the promised land. He did not know where he was going. He was going to a place he'd never seen or, ne never, seen or never been before, and it took a great deal of faith to come out of Babylon into the promised land. When it came time for Isaac to get married, Abraham said, you're not marrying a pagan wife. He sent his servant back to Mesopotamia to get someone who believed in the true God. God has his people still in Babylon. He said, you go and you get Rebecca. And Rebecca came out of Babylon into the promised land. When it came time for Jacob to get married, he went back east, Mesopotamia, went to Haran, and he got Rachel and Leah and their two servants. And he brought them out of Babylon into the promised land. The children of Israel, because of their unfaithfulness, were carried away by Nebuchadnezzar. Seventy years in Babylon. They got comfortable. They started business. They had families. They learned the language. Then after 70 years, God said, Babylon is going to be plagued. I want you to come out of Babylon and go back to Israel, to the promised land. A lot of the people said, wait a second. We know that we started out there, but we're here now. We know that it was God's design that we be faithful and, and be his special people in the promised land. But we've been here so long. We're used to it. Our families are here. Our friends are here. We know how to get around on the subway. We don't want to leave right now. It was a tremendous test for them. Some of them listened to God's call and they made the sacrifice and they came out of Babylon. They went back to the promised land. You know, the Bible says there was a high priest by the name of Joshua who led them. You know how you say Joshua, Yeshua in Greek? Jesus, the high priest, led them out of Babylon back to the promised land. It was a terrible struggle. They'd been there 70 years. I've only been here in New York City for four weeks and I've got my roots down again. Got all my stuff in its place and I found my way around. Now here we are on the edge of the second coming. God has his people in spiritual Babylon. 
And they're saying, we've, we've been here a long time. Our friends were in this church. Uh, we're used to it. Our families were raised here. You're asking us to leave and come into another body? Yes. That's going to be hard. Uh-huh. But the Lord is not asking you to do anything that Jesus didn't do. Jesus had to make some terrible transitions. When he began his ministry, he said, my father's house is a house of prayer. At the end of his ministry, when they did not accept the word, he walked away and said, your house is left unto you desolate. And a curse came on those who stayed behind. You see, friends, the plagues fall on those who choose to remain in Babylon. That's why I'm pleading with you. If God's speaking to you and you know you're in Babylon, come out. Some people say, well, I'm, I'm going to wait. I'm going to pray about this. I know that what you're saying is true, but all my friends are here. And I'm going to share with them. If you try to convert Babylon, it will convert you. You've got to come out first and set an example. The best thing you can do for those you love is for you to follow God. The best time to listen to God's voice is when you're hearing it. When these meetings are over, you're going to be less inclined. The best time to do God's will is when you know God's will. Every day that goes by after God shows His will to you and you neglect to do His will, you develop a spiritual callus on your ear and it becomes harder and harder to hear Him. The best time to do God's will is when He speaks it to you. Every day you procrastinate, it gets easier and easier to put it off. If He's calling you, He always says, Today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your heart. And so friends, I know many of you are struggling with this decision. God is calling His children all over the world to come out of Babylon, come into the truth of His Word. Amen? Now, I've got a lot left to say here, and I'm running out of time. Question number eight. Jesus repeatedly indicts Babylon for making the world drunk with her wine. What is this wine? Revelation 17, verse 4. Having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations. Now, friends, I'm going to be specific. If you are in a church, they may claim to be Christian, but they're eating their own bread if they tell you you don't need to keep the Ten Commandments. The Bible says that sin is the transgression of the law. And the devil hates the law of God because when people recognize their sin, they go to Jesus for cleansing. You're in Babylon if you're in a church and it says it doesn't matter what day you keep. Am I being plain enough? Yeah. If you're in a church that says you die and go right to heaven or hell before the resurrection, before the judgment, that's a pagan doctrine that crept into the church in dark ages. It's not biblical. You're in Babylon. If you're in a church that says that the wicked will be tormented through all eternity for the sins of one brief life, lifetime, that came from Greek mythology, Plato and Hades. You're in Babylon. And you, by staying in Babylon, endorse and support those things. If you're in a church that says you can be baptized by sprinkling and pouring, other than the method that Christ designed, that's one of the traits of Babylon. If you're in a church that believes a confusion of tongues is evidence of the Holy Spirit rather than a curse, you're in Babylon. Paul said, I'd rather speak five words with my tongue whereby I might educate others than 10,000 in an unknown tongue. The trumpet gives an uncertain sound. Who shall prepare for the battle? The main message of 1 Corinthians 14 is when you speak, make sure those listening understand. And somehow people take that chapter and twist it into justifying babbling in church. Friends, I'm sorry. The Bible says, Paul twice tells us, avoid vain babblings. God gives us the gift of tongues for the purpose of communicating the gospel in a language people understand. Number nine. Oh, wait. What are some of the other doctrines of Babylon? You all wonder what I'm going to say about this, aren't you? She was a godly lady. I just came back from India. I have tremendous respect for Mother Teresa. I believe that she was very sincere. I expect to see her in heaven. She dedicated her whole life. But what the church is doing is they are deifying her. They're considering making her a saint and praying to her. Now, friends, I, she said before her death she didn't want to be canonized. She just wanted to serve God because she loves the idea that we take humans and make them into gods, that was the first lie that the devil perpetrated on the human race. He said, you will be as God. No, there's only one God. The devil wants to be God. He will never be God. And I've got news for you. You will never be God. Peter, James, and John will never be God. We are supposed to pray to Jesus. We're supposed to pray to the Father through Christ. We're not supposed to pray to humans. When John in Revelation fell down to worship an angel, the angel said, no, don't do that. You're breaking one of the commandments. And this was a glorified angel. 
How much less? The Bible says we are made lower than the angels. How much less should we pray to mortals that have sinned? No, 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 no. Uh, we're not supposed to do that. I believe that she was a godly lady. I expect to see her in the kingdom. Should she be a saint we pray to? Heavens, no. And then with Mary. Are you aware that the church now, they're calling Mary co-redemptrix with Christ? That we are not just redeemed by Jesus, we are redeemed by Mary. Well, the Bible says there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. That's the doctrine of devils. And with all due respect for Mary, who also was a saint, holy woman, she'll be in heaven. We're not supposed to pray to her. Please, where is the scripture? Tell me, somebody, that says we're supposed to pray to Mary. It does not exist. Please, show me the scripture that says she was assumed into heaven without dying. Or that she remained a virgin through her whole life. All these doctrines, what they did is they took the doctrines of Diana and they superimposed them on the mother of Jesus, Mary. And they made a goddess out of her. And now they're thinking of exalting her to the position with the Father, Son, and Spirit. So instead of a trinity, we'll have a holy quartet. <laughs> now, does God, does people on earth define who God is? We vote gods into position? No, heavens forbid, friends. These are very dangerous doctrines. And... As you look at the headlines, is it just me or have you noticed how much it's filling the news lately? All the major periodicals are filled with this emphasis of the workings and the movings of the Catholic Church and the strong movement that they've got that they're um, in initiating to weld together Christians from all different backgrounds. There's a revival that's taking place, but it's something that should cause us caution. Number nine. What power will support the beast in the end time? Revelation 13, verse 11 and 12, I beheld another beast. Now we're focusing on that second beast that came up out of the earth with two horns like a lamb and he spoke as a dragon. And it tells us that this beast, uh, I don't know if the, uh, well, the rest of this question, uh, we, we missed that. It says he spoke as a dragon and he exercises all the power of the first beast before him and he caused those that dwell on the earth to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Now, I just wanted to finish that. What is that second beast? It's the United States. You notice the first beast comes up out of the water, densely populated civilization. This beast comes up out of the earth. If the waters represent a densely populated area, then it makes sense that the earth would represent a sparsely populated land. What new country about 1798 was rising into prominence and ended up becoming a world power that hosts the United Nations? It's none other than the United States. It says it has two horns like a lamb. Starts as a Christian nation. What does a lamb represent in Revelation? It's Christ. It tells you right in Revelation, the lamb that was slain is Jesus. Starts out with two horns like a lamb. What are those two horns? Civil freedom and religious liberty. That means we have a government without a king. We've got a church without a pope. The people have freedom. And those two freedoms, protected freedoms, made us blossom and flourish. And people have flocked to the shores of this country, many of them coming through this city, from around the world seeking political and religious freedom. But the tragedy is it says starts out like a lamb, but it changes. Ends up speaking like a dragon. It says here, he exercised all the power of the first beast before him. What did the first beast do? Persecuted and told people how to worship. Well, America is joining in league with that first beast that had a deadly wound that was healed. And causes the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Well, friends, I think that prophecy is clearly coming to, come into place. Some of you remember this Time article a few years ago, The Holy Alliance. It's all out in the open now that Ronald Reagan and Pope John Paul II worked very much in cooperation with each other to bring about the demise of communism, starting with what happened in, uh, in Poland. Reagan and the Pope agreed to undertake a clandestine campaign to hasten the dissolution of the communist empire. Did it work? Don't underestimate the power of the union of these two entities. And you can see not only during the Reagan administration, but the Pope has come to America more than any other Pope in history, and he's welded an alliance. We have an ambassador to the Vatican. Why would the United States have an ambassador to a church? You know, I remember a quote in the book Great Controversy that Protestants would be foremost in stretching their hand across the abyss 
Protestants in America to clasp the hands of Romanism. And uh, you can see evidence of that even in some of the photographs where they are joining hands for the purpose of creating a new world order. Now that sounds really good. New world order. But what does that mean? This is a quote from the ambassador to the Vatican. I believe that the United States as the world's only superpower and the Holy See, Roman Catholic Church, as the only worldwide moral political sovereignty have significant roles to play in the future. Their actions will impact the lives of people in all parts of the globe. Thomas P. Medley, U.S. Ambassador to the Vatican. You can even look at the architecture and see that we've made an image to the beast. Have you ever considered how much the American government is framed after the government of Rome? We've got a Senate. Even our calendar that's adopted is, is completely Roman. Are you uh, aware? Why is there a month called August? Augustus Caesar. Why is there a month called July? Julius Caesar. Why is February so short? Because Augustus Caesar did not want July to have more days than he had, so he took days off February and put them on his month. <laughs> the days of the week that we all recognize. The Bible never named them. God numbered them. One, two, three, four, five, preparation, Sabbath. Six is the preparation day, Sabbath then, okay? We call them Sunday. You know why it's called Sunday? It's not S-O-N after Jesus. It's S-U-N because it was the venerable day when the Romans worshipped the sun god Apollo. Then Monday was moon day. And so much of our culture and our economy, you look at the architecture as you walk around Washington, D.C., even parts of New York City, you can see the Roman theme is still present. Number 10, according to the prophecy... What drastic change is going to take place in America? And this is where people are really shocked when they see what's on the horizon. It says he ends up speaking like a, a dragon. Now, how is America going to speak like a dragon? How does a country speak? A nation speaks through its laws and legislative body. That means America is going to end up legislating religion. Just like what happened in Rome, just like what happened in Daniel chapter 3 and Daniel chapter 6. America, the country that we love, is going to repeat that behavior. Let me see if I can spell it out for you, friends. People's souls are on the line. I want to make it as clear as possible. Do we all believe that we're near the end of time? Yes. The devil has not changed his plan. Sin is the transgression of God's law. He wants to get as many people to break one of God's laws. All you need to do is break one, because he who violates one is guilty of all, James tells us. In Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar makes an image. Those that do not pray to the image should be killed. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand up. They say, we would rather obey God, lose our jobs, and lose our lives. And some people may lose their lives for obeying God. It wouldn't be the first time. I know people who said, Doug, I'd like to keep the Sabbath, but I might lose my job. Pardon me, friends, big deal. There are people who have lost their lives. And I, I don't want to seem unsympathetic, but I've been there. I had to say no to jobs because I couldn't keep God's commandments. You're going to be surrounded by people in the kingdom who were tortured because they would not bow down and break God's law. How much do you love the Lord? How committed, how resolved are you to obey Him? Yes, you may be tested. You may go through some trials, but God will go through the fiery furnace with you. Amen? Amen. Get to Daniel chapter 6. There's a government law. Daniel's got to decide, do I obey the commandments of God not worship King Darius or obey uh, the commandments of God or obey the commandments of the government. A religious political law. Daniel decided to put God first. He would not even look like he was disobeying. He opened up his windows, opened up his mouth, got on his knees in a posture of prayer, prayed towards Jerusalem out loud. Some people say, well, Doug, can't I keep going to church on Sunday and I'll just rest Sabbath? Well, you're going to look like you're keeping it along with everybody else, right? And that would be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when the music played and everyone's supposed to bow down and worship the image. They said, hey, let's tie our shoes right now. <laughs> or, let's bow down, but we won't be praying to the idol. We're going to know we're praying to God, right? Well, you need to stand up and be counted. Amen? There's a lot of people who want to compromise. They're wishy-washy. They have no backbone. You know, I heard one preacher say the reason the lions didn't eat Daniel, he had too much backbone. Amen? You read the book of Esther. Mordecai would not bow down to Haman 
All of God's people are going to be exterminated. A law is made to exterminate God's people because he would not break one of the commandments of God. And did God stand up for his people? When the time came, the tables were turned, they were vindicated, the others were destroyed. Friends, you stand by God because I tell you what, if you're wanting to find some way to go through the last days without ruffling any feathers or making anybody angry, it's impossible. I don't know how to break it to you, but you're all going to make somebody mad. You can either disappoint the world and have the rage of the dragon, or you can disappoint the Lord and have the wrath of God. I would much rather be on the winning team. How about you? If you're going to suffer, you may as well suffer and go to heaven. Amen? Amen. So America's going to make laws. And we must decide that we would rather obey God. Amen? Than obey these political religious laws that will be made. Question number 11. What three powers will unite against God's people in the end time? And it says, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. It's interesting. Uh, where is a frog's only weapon? Tongue. And tongues, I believe, this charismatic movement is welding together Catholics and Protestants alike around the world. This false example of the gift of tongues. Number 12. Will these diverse organizations ever effectively unite? Now, here I'm going to spend some time. Revelation 16, 14. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth to the kings of the earth and to the whole world to gather them together to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Is it just me, friends, or have you noticed that there is a very strong movement, impetus, that the churches should unite? Now, have you noticed that? Here I've got some current headlines. Lutheran Catholic Accord... They finally joined Berlin, ending an almost 500-year debate that started when Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the church door. You know what those 95 Theses were? He was protesting the unbiblical doctrines of the church, and he took a stand. That's what launched the Protestant Reformation. They were protesting the unbiblical positions of the Orthodox churches, meaning the Roman, the Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, not going along with the Bible. And now, out of love for each other, Catholics and Lutherans end dispute. Martin Luther would roll over in his grave if he knew what was going on right now. Because a lot of people poured out their blood and laid down their lives to stand up for these principles of truth. Now they're saying, in the interest of loving each other, let's forget about doctrine and put aside our differences. This day is this fulfilled in your ears. November 1, 1999. It's just happening, friends. Not only that, here we've got the Lutherans approve full communion with the Episcopals, Episcopalians. You've heard about that. You know that the Dalai Lama went to visit the Pope. And uh, the religious leaders from around the world were invited to the Vatican. You had Muslim leaders and rabbis and the church is making overtures to every religious group in the world today because one of the main directives for the year 2000, for this new millennium, is that they weld together the Christian and other religions of the world to recognize the Pope as the supreme religious leader of the world. Even Billy Graham, and I have a lot of respect for him and, and what he's done, but he came away from visiting the Pope and he said he is my brother in Christ. And... Um, uh, you know, they, you look at the history of the Reformation and it's, it's hard to say that two can walk together if they're not agreed. Now, I got this in my mailbox in Sacramento just before I came. I thought it was very interesting. Jubilee, Jesus Christ, 2000. It's an invitation for all the churches in the Sacramento area to come to the biggest arena, the Arco Arena in Sacramento, and to put aside our differences in common worship and love, and it says here, in 1997, this plan originated. Sacramento's Catholic bishop proposed to the Episcopal and Lutheran bishops. We just read about those three churches, didn't we? Episcopals, Lutherans, Catholics. To have a local Christian celebration as we move towards the new millennium, this unprecedented event in our community would emphasize our common faith in Jesus Christ, local assemblies of God, Presbyterian, Methodist churches, and it's got quite a few churches here, Baptist churches, Presbyterian, Reformed, United Church of Christ, Methodist, all getting involved, and they've got them all on the platform, and even though I'm on TV seven times a week in Sacramento, and they all know who I am, they never ask me. 
that's okay. I would have had to gracefully decline anyway. They probably knew that. But uh, it's all happening, friends, right underneath our noses. The final events. This great movement towards unity. Take a look at this. Some of you can still get this book on your shelf. Evangelicals and Catholics together toward a common mission. Chuck Colson, good man, has a good ministry. I've met him before. More generally, the spread of the charismatic movement then of songs, prayers, and worship styles going well beyond official charismatic circles has done a great deal to reduce the barriers between Catholics and evangelicals. In other words, as we just get together and worship together, we can break down the barriers and the doctrinal differences that divide us. Let's just praise God together. That's the emphasis of a lot of these um, statements. Billy Graham's cooperative evangelism, in which all the churches in an area are invited to share, is one such charismatic gathering where the distinction between Protestant and Catholic vanishes in a Christ-centered unity of worship. How can you become Christ-centered in unity with organizations that are blasphemous in their theology? Now, I know that doesn't sound very friendly. That doesn't sound politically correct. But it's biblical. Jesus said, can two walk together if they're not agreed? The Bible says we should not be unequally yoked together in our marriages. We shouldn't be unequally yoked together in our churches as well. Because this is the bride of Christ. Amen. Another book with a foreword by Pat Robertson. A House United, Evangelicals and Catholics Together. A winning combination for the next millennium. Keith A. Fournier. Here's a quote from uh, Pat Robertson, leader of the Christian Coalition. I believe that the emerging alliance, the emerging partnership of Catholics and evangelical Protestants is going to be the most powerful force in the electorate in the 90s and beyond. Well, we've already seen it made a difference. And anybody that ignores that alliance is going to make a big mistake. There is a very strong movement that these churches weld together in as many points as they hold in common. And you know what one of the points is that they all have in common? This Jesus Jubilee they're all getting together on Sunday because they all have that in common, even though there's no biblical basis. Some of you have heard of Chapel of the Air, the Sunday challenge card for ministers. Joining with other leaders throughout North America, they covenant. They're being circulated by the thousands. Diligently teach that Sunday is a unique holy celebration. Lead my people in confession for violating God's Sabbath principle through either legislation. You know what legislation means? Making laws. Through legislation, or I missed the last part. License, yeah. Number three, recommit myself to restoring the living presence of Christ as a primary focus Sunday after Sunday. Model to the best of my ability how to make Sunday special. And most of it sounds very good, except they got one little detail wrong. They got the wrong day. God said the seventh day, and they picked the first. All right, number 13. Need to move along here. What methods does this end-time coalition utilize? Revelation 16, verse 14. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles. There are going to be seen signs and wonders, the Bible says. And he does great wonders so that he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles he has power to do. Friends, this is what's going on right now. There is a big emphasis being placed on uh, what kind of signs, what kind of miracles does your church have? You know, a question I often get is, how do I know that God is with your church? Why don't we see the kind of power and the apostolic miracles that we saw in the New Testament? And I believe before the genuine outpouring of God's Spirit, there is going to be a counterfeit. And the devil himself is going to impersonate Christ. I'll make a prediction. I'm not a prophet. But I believe there's going to be a financial disaster. I believe that right now the stage is being set so that Christians from around the world, out of fear, are going to say, look, society is deteriorating. There's so much crime and there's so many problems with drugs and the immorality. In order to save our society, we need to come together. And then when there's some kind of economic collapse, people get very motivated at times like that. Are you aware that Hitler came into power on the heels of an economic disaster in Germany? Napoleon came into power on the heels of an economic catastrophe in France. And I believe that our stock market that keeps on going up, 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 up. Some of you have maybe heard of the book by Larry Burkett, Coming Economic Earthquake. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. 
but eventually the bubble's going to burst, friends, and then people are going to be ready to listen to anybody who will promise to save them fiscally. And I think that the stage is being set now where they're going to look to America and they're going to look to the most visible religious leader in the world. Who is that? And you know what? Pope John Paul II, good man, his health is not really good. It might be the next person who comes on the scene. I think Satan himself is going to impersonate Christ. He says, God came to earth in the form of a man to teach what he believes. I would like to assume the form of a human. Doesn't mean he will be incarnate, but at least appear that way or possess a person for the purpose of impersonating Christ. And you are going to have to go by what your Bible says. Number 14, what will prevent God's end time people from being deceived? What's going to be our only safety, friends? The only safety is going to be the rock of God's word. We must build on Christ and his teachings or we will be deceived. It says to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in him. What is the law and the testimony? It's the word of God. It's the new and the old testaments. It's the two edges of that sword. It's Moses and Elijah. It's the spirit and the commandments. Friends, those are to be the criteria how we determine what is true. Not by signs and wonders, because the devil can make you see things. He can counterfeit miracles. What will you do? If someone comes along claiming to be Christ, and he heals children, or at least appears to, he echoes some of the same things you've heard Jesus say. Does the devil know the Bible? Yes. Does signs and wonders, brings fire down from heaven. You see what appears to be the Holy Spirit falling on vast throngs of people. They're overwhelmed with you euphoric feelings. But the doctrines of this individual are not biblical. What are you going to believe? You're going to believe what everyone tells you to believe, what everyone's doing, what your senses tell you, or is your faith so thoroughly rooted in the Word of God, you're going to do what the Lord says instead of what you feel. Friends, I pray that it will be your decision. Loving Lord, please send your spirit right now to be with those who are in the valley of decision, that they might cast their vote for Jesus. They might look up to the cross where he bled and died for them and accept him as Lord. And that means, Lord, following wherever he leads. I'm praying this in their behalf. In Christ's name, amen.